Hi, and kia ora from New Zealand. This is Susan Basterfield, author of Lead Together, The Bold, Brave, Intentional Path scaling your business and you're listening to my quest for the best with bill ringle listen up small business founders senior managers and rising stars bill ringle here host of my quest for the best the podcast for ambitious small business leaders on each episode i bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people managing your business and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Susan Basterfield. Susan's an educator, coach, facilitator, writer, and collective entrepreneur at Greater Than, a global consulting organization. She believes that awareness and discernment can unblock drains and move mountains, and she has 35 years of business experience. Obsessed with building the capacity to build capacity, she seeks out that which is life-giving, dances with complexity, and weeds out constraints to potential. Susan lives in Wellington, New Zealand, and is here to talk about her book, Lead Together, The Bold, Brave, Intentional Path to Scaling Your Business. Welcome, Susan. Hi, Bill. How are you? I'm doing great. Susan, tell me, when you were growing up, who's someone who influenced or inspired you? There's many, but the one that always comes to mind in the story I like to tell is Mr. Lee, my 11th grade history teacher. And I can remember in his class, the first moment I had an original opinion. I think that when we're growing up, we go through and are inspired and our parents and our teachers and our friends, but the encouragement to have an original idea came from Mr. Lee in 11th grade history. I've got to ask, what was the original idea you had? I think it was the idea of looking at recent American history from a perspective that wasn't my father's or my mother's and understanding the complexity that it wasn't necessarily black and white and that I could have my own opinion on matters of politics and the way that I looked at the world. And that was very enlivening for me. What else do you remember that Mr. Lee did to encourage you to go beyond just having your opinion, but expressing it, finding examples to support it, being able to perhaps debate with others around it. I can totally remember the report that I wrote that opened my eyes. It was on the National Guard shootings at Kent State University during the protests of the Vietnam War. And I can remember seeing the photograph of the woman as she kneeled over the body of her classmate in abject horror and just shock that in America, we could turn on each other so quickly. And I think the combination of the photograph, hearing some of the audio and doing the research really helped me to figure out how a story could spark, I don't want to say imagination, but provoke thought. And it was very inspiring and still inspires me to this day. And what was this that you were studying? Was it in New New Zealand or in the United States? It was in the US. So even though I live in New Zealand and I've uh, been in New Zealand since 2003, I was born in Chicago and I grew up in Southern California and I left America in 1995 and have been in New Zealand since 2003. So that's probably why you're hearing a little bit of an accent that you can't quite discern. But yeah, I grew up in the US. Think about when you were out working after college, there was some aspect of Mr. Lee's influence that led you to make a decision or support someone. And you could just tell that it was through the model he had shared with you that you're now paying it back or paying it forward to someone else. 
I'd never really considered that. And I think that I started working in my senior year in high school and I worked my way through university in the nascent computer sector. So I was in in a really privileged position of creating a market and helping people that didn't really understand how something new and innovative could impact and influence their way of thinking and their way of working. And so I think that there's probably something in there if we dig or scratch the surface around telling stories, helping people see potential, helping people, yeah, just see something they haven't seen before. And I think that probably is evocative of what I learned from Mr. Lee. It's interesting how often the words provocative and evocative are part of our conversation so far. Being able to really stimulate and prod and look at ideas and experiences to see what's underneath them. Yeah, absolutely. I tell a story that I tell more than any other is I think that it's a Maori which is a native New Zealand mythology, but I think it probably exists in other mythologies as well, that there's two sort of young teenage fish swimming in the river in the lake. And coming from the other direction comes an older fish that greets the young fish and says, hey boys, how's the water? And the two young fish look at each other and say, what's water? This also is from, I think, actually, even before the Maori mythology, I heard this first in David Foster Wallace's great commencement speech entitled This is Water, which is something that continues to inspire me. And I watch at least once every couple of months. So I encourage anybody to look on YouTube for This is Water commencement speech. Anyway, getting to the point, there are so many things about the way that we operate and move through life that we just don't pay attention to anymore. It's just the water that we swim in. And we don't even know what it is. We sometimes can't even name it. And that's everything from the way that society set up to the way we move through school and then into our business and our work life. We just assume that there's one way to do it and we just do it without even thinking about it. So the challenge that I always pose to myself and others is if we can name the water that we're swimming in, that can give us some options. And with options, we have choices, but it's really up to us to open our eyes and decide that we're going to name what's right in front of us because it's so easy not to do. That's really interesting because I think that a lot of people would agree that the pandemic forced us to confront a lot of the assumptions about how we think work should work and what type of roles we should have at home and how children can learn. And all of that is part of that holistic image of how we swim through the water of our daily lives. What types of conversations has the pandemic led you to have with your clients? As we're talking now in December of 2020, we've been under these conditions for nine months or so. And I know that you live in New Zealand and kudos to you and the prime minister who's led so well in order to create COVID-free conditions in New Zealand. Jacinda Ardern, yes. And yes, she showed extraordinary leadership, but I think the the leadership was really shown by the people of New Zealand who we just decided that we can do a little bit of sacrifice on behalf of everybody and we can actually eliminate COVID in New Zealand. And I think it's really the mindset of the entire nation that we're a team, we're a team of 5 million. She happens to be our coach, right? now or a manager, whatever you want to call it. And we decided to get this thing done. She is a very amazing leader and we're very fortunate that she's been guiding us through this, but it's really the people who made this happen. And when I think about my personal experience through the pandemic, first thing out of the gate, when we were still in lockdown, because we did have a five-week lockdown here in New Zealand, we were working with an organization called Culture Amp, who you may or may not be aware of. And they asked us to help them 
provide remote facilitation training to their multi-thousands of customers. And I think that we ended up training about 600 of their customers over about five or six weeks at how to not just pick up meetings that used to be held in four walls and transport them into the virtual world, but what the opportunity is to rethink how we have meetings, why we have meetings, how we can encourage more participation, how we can use great tools like Zoom and the breakout functionality, for example, to give people a voice in the way they haven't had before, in, in the way that most meetings are held as an information dump or a sense-making opportunity by the highest paid person to actually spew their ideas into the center, but not really want to get anything back. So that's one example of, in the early stages of the pandemic, what was made possible. Let's discuss a couple of these issues. I think it's great because I think that a lot of companies are still struggling with how to hold meetings that either meet expectations or exceed them. And what's your take on good reasons to hold meetings rather than simply the information dump or the social connection that occurs from us all seeing each other and checking in. One of the examples I really love is from a company in Canada in Montreal called Percolab. They have a process called the Wise Agenda, which they use for all meetings. And they reckon that there are four reasons to have meetings. The first one is to share information. The second one is to get input on a particular idea. The third one is to do work together in the moment. And the fourth one is to make decisions together. And using tools or templates like the Wise Agenda can help us really articulate what's the purpose here. And I think that's the overarching mandate that I feel in any meeting is that there has to be a purpose. And even if the purpose is we are coming together because we don't quite know what to do yet, that's still a purpose. I think that with the ubiquity of tools allows us to share information in more synchronous ways. But if we can get clear on the purpose of meetings, I think we can actually make them great. And actually host meetings that people look forward to. Absolutely. Love the idea out of open space technology that I think that we probably could apply more to our, our meetings and work. It's called the law of mobility. And the idea is that if you're in a meeting and you're neither learning or contri- nor contributing, then it's your responsibility to actually leave the meeting. And I think that, that engages another type of agency that we can utilize and that we should probably be utilizing more to take responsibility for what we need out of meetings and how we can use them for learning opportunities. I think that's interesting. And I just want to clarify, there might be an hour-long meeting and you know that your part where you're going to contribute is coming up maybe in the last quarter. Then you might stick around to that knowing that you have an agenda item that you need to report on or get input on or ask for input in order to make a decision. That would be true, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that if you do have great agendas and people can see them ahead of time and know what to expect, then we can plan our participation accordingly. Have you seen that work with organizations that you're working with where they actually take that level of responsibility? And what is the kind of mind trash that needs to be cleared out before people can do that? And everybody in that meeting understands that to not take it personally, to understand that it's something where people are taking responsibility and it's not people being rude. It's simply taking responsibility. 
It takes practice. And I guess my other most well-worn meme is that we need to make the implicit explicit. You couldn't just rock up to work on Monday or your first Zoom meeting of the day on Monday and start acting this way because you're acting out of an implicit perspective instead of something that's explicit. But it's a great opportunity for you to get together with your team and say, how do we want to be in meetings? What do we expect of each other? What's the behavior that we want to practice? What are our accountabilities to each other? What kind of commitments are we making? And not only just talking about it, writing it down. And it might just be in the form of an experiment. So for the month of January, we want to experiment with the law of mobility and having a wise agenda in advance. And let's put these things in place. And then at the end of January, we'll do a retrospective. We'll reflect on did that work? What did that enable? What did that constrain? Do we want to keep on doing this? Is there something that we want to tweak for February to see how we can go forward? And so it's a combination of practice, making the implicit explicit, and a mindset of experimentation. We don't have to make forever decisions, and it's probably not wise often to make forever decisions, but it can be quite fun to make a decision for an experiment that lasts a month, for example, and see what we learn from it. Susan, one of the issues that comes to mind when you talk about making the implicit explicit are also preconceptions that people have as to what your role is or what type of background or capability that somebody has given a particular role. Can you talk about that in terms of experience in working with a particular client? Absolutely. So my friend Jan, who is the CEO of a disability services organization of about 150 people, they're called Tautoka Options and they operate in the North and South Island of New Zealand. About three years ago, she came to me and said, Susan, I've just had a conversation with my board. I want to be retiring within the next five years. And I've told my board board that I don't think that they should replace me with another bog standard CEO. I think that there's enough capability in my team and in the organization that if we spend the next three, four years building their capacity, that we can continue to provide the great service that we provide in the communities without this arbitrary title CEO. And so that's a really interesting example of working with a founder that has a vision that believes this possible, doesn't quite know what's going to happen, but is willing to go on the journey with the entire organization over the course of multiple years to see what ends up being possible. And she is now getting ready to step down on the 30th of July, 2021. And there are a few things that still need to be done, but I'll tell you what, the capacity for decision-making, the capacity for for making and keeping agreements, the capacity for self-reflection in this organization is unbelievable. And it came to light very clearly in COVID. So where things were moving um, a mile a minute, not knowing what was actually going on, but at the same time, Joe, who is in, cannot, needs, needs somebody to help cook for him and help wash him, couldn't wait to see what the COVID restrictions were going to be. But because they hate this whole organization were so practiced in self-management and self-organization, the, the way that they were able to respond in a crisis was miles ahead of the other organizations in the sector that hadn't had this practice. From a practical standpoint, when you're looking to make this transition, many times you'll find people who have the talent, skill, and capability to step up into those higher levels of responsibility. And practically speaking, 
I imagine that you're always going to find that there's some people who either don't want it, haven't signed up for that level of responsibility, or really don't have the capability of being responsible. How do those conversations go? And am I correct in that assumption? I think that everybody has the capability and the capacity for being responsible for things. If we're responsible enough to get up in the morning, to have some breakfast, to get ourselves to the workplace and to do a role, then we are capable of responsibility. I know people in many organizations, and I'm, I'm thinking of several right now, who do a fabulous job, say, at customer service, yet if you ask them to do financial projections, they don't have the background nor the interest in learning how to do that, and they would decline responsibility responsibility if it were offered in that. So as Jen is having people step into these roles, didn't you have to realign some of the responsibilities in order to make it successful? So as Jan is creating the conditions for there not to be a role of the CEO, it was important for her to actually unwind all of the responsibilities and accountabilities that she has. And I think the idea is important that currently a job description for a CEO is just a random collection of tasks and jobs or outcomes. And it, it, they don't necessarily, it is quite random in most cases that they're aligned to a particular job description. So in Jan's case, she has the whole executive team have realigned themselves and given themselves a new title of service stewards. So the five service stewards have, over the last couple of years, each taken on several of the accountabilities of what was the CEO role. And in doing that, they have actually passed down some of their former responsibilities to people who might have just been team leaders. So when we start to look at roles not as job titles with randomly allocated accountabilities and to start to look at the work from a more holistic perspective, we can find that, yes, sure, maybe somebody that is a web designer is never going to be a, an accountant, but maybe that web designer does have the development goal of learning how to write reports for, for one of the service providers. When we start to look at roles instead of job titles, we can start to figure out who's up for it, because you're right, because some people are not going to be up for everything. But to create the conditions where it's not that linear path of arbitrary of an arbitrary collection of roles that's conjoined with a title and a pay grade. Roles sometimes seem not just arbitrarily created, but unchangeable. And what you're doing is you're introducing flexibility and malleability and being able to rearrange and reconfigure roles so that they really do allow people to thrive and meet the needs of the organization. Is that right? Absolutely. And it's, and again, just going back to my well-worn saying, it's making the implicit explicit. In some ways, it's as simple as that. It does take work and it does take time to actually have the courage and bravery to, to really look at what you do. I, I like to tell the story, especially when I lived in corporate, you'd get hired for a job. HR would give you a job description that probably had some typos in it because it was about five years old. You'd get that along with your contract and it would go in the bottom drawer and you never look at it again. And I used to challenge people six months a year and pull out your job description that you got hired on and really look at it and see what it, which of these things are you actually doing and write down what you actually are doing. And I bet you there might not be that much of an overlap. That's right. For the people who are still with you when you said, find your job description. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Susan, are you ready for the My Quest for the Best Lightning Round? 
I am so ready. Let's do this thing. Earlier, I talked about when you're growing up, who's someone who influenced or inspired you? And you referenced Mr. Lee, your 11th grade history teacher. When you were a teenager, Susan, what's a song that you loved? Roundabout by Yes. So your mission is to help organizations understand how they can make transitions to a more fluid role structure and to empower more people to lead so that organizations are more successful. How do you get the word out about your mission each week? Okay, so I've got a a bit of a working out loud practice where I will retweet, comment, ask questions on people's LinkedIn posts, share blog posts, connect with people. I have probably two or three ambassadoring calls a, a week where people find me and just want a conversation. So those are the principal things that I do. What tool or system do you use that helps you stay on track and productive week in and week out? One tab is great. If you're anything like me and have a million tabs open, that's really useful. And I guess the other thing is I never have any unread messages in my email box. And I think that keeping on top of that makes me feel good about my work. What would you say is the best business advice you've ever received? Once got to the top two for a senior role in Microsoft and I didn't get the job. And I was told it was because I was too much of a free thinker to work at Microsoft. That was the best business advice I'd ever received. What would you say is the best $100 or so purchase you've made in the last six months? Probably my repurchase of Bose noise-canceling headphones. A little bit more than 100 bucks, but more or less. Other than your own book, what's a book that you've given the most as a gift in the last couple of years? I guess my other book, another book that I co-authored called Better Work Together, How the Power of Community Can Transform Your Business. That came my work with the Entrepreneurs Collective in Spiral. And what's your definition of personal success? I know I'm being successful when... My energy is consistent. What would you say is the most important habit, routine, or belief that you've stopped in the last year that's brought you the most pleasure or personal satisfaction? Feeling like I have to say yes to everything. I'm saying no a lot more. And what helped you with that? I think friends that were seeing this in me and seeing that I wasn't achieving my definition of personal success, which was consistent, which is consistent energy, because I was just saying yes to too many things. Susan, with the idea of working together, if a company is thinking that they're applying some of these ideas because it superficially resembles what you talk about in having a strong mission, in having clear ideas of what roles need to take place, and a commitment to really going on this journey. What are one or two of the common mistakes that people make? And then what's necessary in order to get them back on the right track? Well, a hypothesis that I'm still trying to disprove is that the person who's currently sitting on top of the pyramid as the founder or the CEO or the general manager has to be all in and they can't just be in with lip service. They have to be fully participating in in the process. It's not something a, a system can't transform if the whole system is not willing to transform. I think that another thing that I've seen, especially in the early days, was the idea of leading together less bosses, less hierarchy. I can think of an example where Randall, not his real name, started a company and told his investors that that there was never going to be middle managers and they would never have that expense because they would have a a, a leaderless horizontal organization. He was doing it for completely the wrong reasons. And of course, it didn't work. And yeah, so those are are two of the provocative things that I'd say. The founder leader has to be not only all in, but all participating. And it's not something that you can do just to eliminate a scourge of management. For cost-saving reasons. Correct. Susan, you've been so generous in sharing with me on my quest for the best today. I want to thank you so much for talking about Mr. Lee and 
talking about the different examples. I, I love the Amori example with the older fish coming to the teenage fish saying, how's the water? And the younger fish saying, what's water? Challenging people to name the water that they're swimming in. in order to become more aware. It jars you into thinking what options you have or don't have, what assumptions you've made. And until you make the implicit explicit, you're not aware of the choices that you have. We talked about CultureAmp in being able to conduct remote facilitation for hundreds of their customers and how you help them really rethink about the purpose of meetings and using the model from uh, Wise Agenda for reasons to have meetings. And probably if it's not one of those four reasons, you really don't need to have a meeting. Being able to think through these ideas, like with Jan, who had 150 people and said, we're going to go on this journey. And Jan said, we're going to go all in. And she supported it. She really was all in and knew that it was going to not necessarily be painless because there were going to be changes that needed to be made. Yet they've expanded their capability and people have stepped up into different roles and responsibilities have been shared so that there are more people contributing in more significant ways than ever before. So for all these reasons and so many more, Susan, I want to thank you for being on my quest for the best today. Thanks, Bill. So the best place is my company, Greater Than, and it's greater than dot works, greater than is one word, and then dot works. That's the best place. That's just what I was about to say. Susan, we're not only going to link to your website, we're going to link to your books websites on Amazon, as well as your social media so people could stay in touch with you and keep up with what's going on with the principles of Lead Together. So Susan Basterfield, co-author of Lead Together, The Bold, brave, intentional path to scaling your business. I want to thank you once again for joining me on My Quest for the Best. Thanks, Bill. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on My Quest for the Best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.